0: Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our blessed fathers, we reopen your holy word. We earnestly ask that its preaching and the hearing thereof would not prove to be in vain for any of us here today. And thus we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would greatly clothe with his anointing power both the proclamation and the hearing and the receiving of the truth of your word that will be opened up and given to us on this your holy day as the food that we desperately need for the nourishment of our souls and the sanctification of our very character more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask Such things, for the sake of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen and amen. I do invite you to take the word of God and let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, as we consider this morning what I've entitled, To Everyone Who Believes. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first And also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. So reads the infallible inerrant sufficient word of the living eternal God. Last week, I raised a question as a starting point for entering into the exposition of Romans 1:16 and 17. Why was Paul the Apostle not ashamed of the gospel? Why was Paul the Apostle not ashamed of the gospel? I believe this question is extremely important for two essential reasons other than helping us with the context of. Of Romans 1:16 and 17. In the first place, we need to raise this question because all of us as believers have struggled with shame in the gospel. Indeed, most of us have a real heart problem with being ashamed of the gospel, and that for several reasons. First, there is the fear of man. The fear of man, which probably drives most everything we say or do more than we actually realize. Especially if you understand that the fear of man has as much to do with wanting man's approval and recognition as it does with being afraid of what man will do to us in a harmful way. This is the very reason why the book of Proverbs tells us and teaches us that the fear of man is a snare. It is a very alluring snare, and that to us all. Because in our natural selves, in our natural flesh, we want to be liked. We want people to approve of us, to accept us. And if that drives you, if that controls you, then you're not being driven and controlled by the fear of God, but the fear of man. And that is certainly one of the chief reasons why Christians are ashamed of the gospel. Because of the fear of man. Second, there is the fear of not knowing what to say to someone. This fear can be connected to our own ignorance of the gospel itself. We're not as clear in our understanding of the gospel as we should be, as we ought to be. Or... It can be a fear related to the potential of facing opposition to the gospel when we present it to an unbeliever. That's a very real fear. Third, there's also a shame in the gospel expressed by embarrassment over how intimidating and unattractive the gospel is to unbelievers. The shame is especially seen in churches that are driven to make the gospel a nice message that won't offend anybody. Unwittingly, however, what these churches end up doing is bringing great offense to Jesus Christ himself by replacing his saving gospel with a social gospel that has been only to relieve man's domestic needs than to deal honestly with his sin problem And his ultimate need to be made right with God. Finally, I believe the real root of our shame in the gospel stems from simply not having Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure. Not having Jesus Christ as our greatest treasure. You remember the axiom that I gave to you several weeks ago in one of the expository readings. Whatever you prize will be what you praise. Whatever you prize will be what you praise. People are going to know the treasure of our hearts because that will be what is uppermost in our conversation with others. It's a fact The Bible tells us in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. And then in Luke 6.45 we're told that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So putting these verses together, we see that that the profusion of our words comes from the heart which is a true expression of what we value and love most in our lives. Therefore, whatever you prize in your heart will be what you praise with your mouth. Thus, if we struggle with being ashamed of the gospel, we might have to face a deeper and uglier issue for our shame, which is treasuring something or someone more than Jesus Christ himself. But the bottom line in light of All these differing reasons for shame in the gospel is simply that every Christian has to face squarely and honestly the reality of this sin in their lives, no matter where it stems from. This, therefore, is the first important reason we need to raise this question as to why Paul the apostle was not ashamed of the gospel. It's so we can face our own problem with shame in the gospel. The second reason, however, that we need to ask why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel is because we must have an example to follow which is unashamed of the gospel. No one lives the Christian life in a vacuum. No one is meant by God to live the Christian life on their own, unaffected, and disconnected from other believers trying to figure out how this life looks and what it is to be. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. To live the Christian life, God has given us his word, he's given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and God has provided us with other believers in Christ who are models of the Christian life. In other words God has furnished human templates as it were for our Christian lives to imitate. And Paul the apostle should be somewhere in the top 5 on all our lists of Christian paradigms worthy to follow. For example, consider this just about Paul, okay? This was a man who confesses that Christ was his life and death was his gain. A man who had learned to be content in every circumstance because he could do all things through Christ. A man who counted everything that was once gained to be worthless for the sake of knowing Christ. And finally, a man who said of himself that he was less than the least of all the saints but the chief of sinners. This is a man of God. I want to imitate as a Christian. Moreover, it is the same man of God who said, right here in our text, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And our response as believers to this confession of Paul should be, why? Why was he not ashamed? So that we may have a godly example to follow in overcoming the sin of shame in the gospel that we all struggle with, honestly, to greater or lesser degree. So then, as we return this morning to our study of Romans 1:16 and 17, we're still considering this leading question as to why Paul the apostle was not ashamed of the gospel. The immediate answer to this question is what we find in these two verses. Now, in our last study we saw that Paul had no shame in the gospel because he knew the gospel to be the power of God for salvation. That's exactly what he says. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. This meant that Paul understood the gospel to be a divinely powerful message which is all about salvation through Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation, it is therefore sufficient as being God's only ordained means for bringing sinners to himself through the redemption of his son. In other words, because the gospel is invested with God's saving power, it is enough to preach the gospel to others and expect God to save sinners through this message which exalts his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. This is what Paul expressed in 1 Corinthians one twenty one when he said this. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God has ordained that the gospel message, which is folly or foolishness to the world, will be the vehicle through which he chooses to save sinners. That was Paul's point. In 1 Corinthians 21, and we must share the same conviction if we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. We do not have to improve on the gospel in order for sinners to be saved. We do not have to help the gospel in order for it to be attractive and appealing to sinners. Those kinds of ideas are false and thereby wrong and they are in complete violation of what the scripture plainly teaches regarding the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's be very clear on this. Our mission is simply to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its offensiveness and foolishness to the world proclaiming it without shame and beholding God save sinners through this sacred message. That is our mission because the gospel is enough. It is enough to bring sinners to salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. And this is the first great reason Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. But rather, he made his boast in the gospel. So looking once again at Romans 1.16, let's answer our leading question as to why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And then note this, To everyone who believes... To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul had no shame in the gospel, but only, only vaunting and exulting in the gospel. Because God's gospel was not only a powerful saving message, but it is God's powerful saving message to both potential and actual believers, to both potential and actual believers. In other words, very simply, the gospel is for potential and actual believers. It is to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. Now, for the rest of our time in this study, I want us to consider very carefully the first of these two significant characteristics about the gospel which we glean from these words in Romans 1.16, to everyone who believes. I want us to understand this morning that the gospel is for potential believers, potential believers. This gospel is not a message for some, but a message for everyone. It's not a message for just some, but a message for everyone. It is for those who are potential believers. This takes us back to Paul's statement in verse 14 here in Romans 1. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So there's not a sinner anywhere in this world who is excluded from the saving message of the gospel. Indeed, Paul himself felt an indebtedness. To take the gospel to all men, everywhere, without exception. Because he knew that the gospel was for everyone. Their culture, their education or lack thereof, their gender or ethnicity or the very country in which they live. None of those things bar a sinner from hearing and embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for potential believers and thus it is for everyone. Now, saying that the gospel is for everyone affirms at least three biblical propositions that we as the church must never forget. First, the gospel is a universal message because all people are universally under the power of sin. The gospel is a universal message because all people are universally under the power of sin. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 and verse 23, this is very plainly and clearly set forth. Paul says in that great passage that both Jews and Greeks, which is shorthand for the whole world, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. He goes on to say, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people everywhere are in the grip of sin's power and dominion apart from God's salvation. Man, therefore, man, therefore, is not born good or innocent. He is born in sin, as Psalm 51 verse 5, and Psalm 58 and verse 3, both attest to man is born with a sinful nature that is bent and wired for rebellion and disobedience against God. Haven't you ever wondered as a Christian parent how that you don't have to teach your kids to sin? You don't. Just let them go their own way. They will sin all day long. You do not have to give them any instruction. This is the native air they breathe. Because this is their nature. This is their nature. Moreover, being in this natural sinful condition, it has put everyone... In a deserving position against God's wrath, excuse me, under God's wrath and judgment. So in Romans 4 in verse 5, in Romans 5 in verse 10, sinners are identified as ungodly and as enemies of God. That's not just talking about a few sinners or some sinners That's talking about the whole lot of us. So the first important reason the gospel is for everyone is because everyone is in sin. No one single person in this world can say, the gospel does not apply to me. No, the truth is the gospel is a universal message because all people are universally under the power of sin. Indeed, this is the bad news preceding the good news of the gospel itself. But how can sinners, think about this, how can sinners even even know, how can sinners even appreciate that Jesus Christ came into the world to save them if they're not being told, saved from what? What is the salvation even there for? If we're not opening this up to them and explaining to them, this is why you need salvation. You have a problem. And it's a deep, big problem. It's not just that you've made a mistake. No, you're sinful. The word of God says in Jeremiah seventeen nine, The heart of man, which bespeaks of everything that we are at the core of our being, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. That is a universal assertion and testimony concerning every single person in this world. So again, the gospel is a universal message because all people are universally under the power of sin. Secondly, the gospel is a universal message because Jesus Christ is man's only hope for salvation. Oh, now we come to the good news. A religious pluralistic culture like America does not want to hear, does not want to hear at all that there's only one way to be in right with God. But the truth is God sent his one, God sent only one savior in the world to redeem sinners and reconcile them to himself. And that one Savior is none other than his eternal Son, made flesh, Jesus Christ the Lord. Again, to look here in the book of Romans, the centrality and exclusivity of Jesus Christ is affirmed without apology or shame. In Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, we see that it is Jesus Christ alone who is our only hope of being justified by God's grace. Further, it is Christ alone by whom the wrath of God that we deserve is satisfied to the full in our behalf. Also, in Romans 5, 1-11, we see that by the atoning sacrifice Jesus made, sinners are reconciled to God. This means that the hostility which was there between us and God because of our sin has been completely removed by the blood of Christ. And a new relationship, a new standing, now exists between the believing sinner and God. But the main point that I'm obviously making here is that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. None whatsoever. Therefore, the gospel is a universal message because Jesus Christ is man's only hope for salvation. do you think why do you think that Jesus himself would say in those all too familiar words I say they're all too familiar because as Christians we know we know these words well of our Lord but very worth repeating here John 14 verse 6 Jesus said I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me I'd say that's pretty exclusive indeed I'd say that's pretty dogmatic indeed I'd go so far as to say that Jesus better have the goods or he is a liar or a lunatic to make such a statement like that Well, he did bring the goods, didn't he? Not only in his claims, not only in the life he lived in perfect obedience to God, but in the death, in the death that, that, he, that he gave, remember he gave his own life, he laid down his own life. And then following all of that, he rises from the dead proving emphatically and forever that all his claims and all his work says that he is the Lord of glory. Did Buddha do that? No. Did Muhammad do that? No. Confucius? No. Only Jesus Christ. So he doesn't therefore say that he's one of many ways. He says, I am the way. I am the way way no one comes to the father except through me and that's why in John chapter 4 the Samaritans who came to faith in Christ in the Samaritan town of Sychar said of Jesus and said rightly he is the savior of the world in other words he's the only savior the only savior for sinful man in this world. There is no other Savior but Christ. But then thirdly, since the gospel is a universal message, then it must be preached universally and without discrimination to the whole world. God has given us an awesome task and mission and privilege as his church. We are to take the gospel to all people everywhere. Now I realize that this may seem like a contradiction to affirm universal evangelism and mission since we so strongly affirm the sovereignty of God to save only those sinners he's chosen to save. How can you believe in world missions and evangelism since you believe that God is sovereign in saving sinners? That's a common question, a common objection. Well, this is how we answer such a question. Salvation is God's responsibility. Evangelism is ours. My only business is to get the gospel to as many sinners as I can because as far as I'm concerned, every sinner... Every sinner is a potential believer. Every sinner is a potential believer. I do not know whom God has chosen to save. That's not my business. My business is to preach the gospel to all sinners everywhere. However, as I carry the gospel to others, God, in his sovereignty and by his own good pleasure, chooses to call forth sinners to himself through the gospel message. Affirming this as his own conviction, Charles Spurgeon once declared, our Savior has bidden us to preach the gospel to every sinner. He has not said preach it only to the elect. And though that might seem to be the most logical thing for us to do, yet since he has not been pleased to stamp the elect in their foreheads or put any distinctive mark upon them, it would be an impossible task for us to perform. When we preach the gospel to every creature, now listen to this, Spurgeon says, the gospel makes its own division and Christ's sheep hear his voice and follow him. The gospel makes its own division. So here in the book of Romans, this is very clearly taught. On the one hand, we have the sovereignty of God in salvation. For example, Romans 8 and verse 30 were told, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Romans 9, 16, we hear that salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And again, in Romans 9, 18... God's sovereignty in saving sinners is plainly stated. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. On the other hand, though, the book of Romans teaches the responsibility of the church to evangelize. In Romans 10, 14 through 17, we hear the great commission of the church to carry the gospel into all the world. Listen to these words. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now now look at what God has ordained and commanded. The salvation of all sinners whom God chooses to save will not come about apart from the evangelism and mission of the church. In other words, apart from the preaching of the gospel, there is no salvation. Romans 10, 17, listen to it again. So faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the rhema of Christ. That is the preached word of Christ. And what this this is, this is just another way of saying the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God saves through the gospel. And so we're commanded by Christ to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all people everywhere. And we thus see this example in Paul. He was indebted. He was eager and unashamed to proclaim the gospel to everyone who would listen because he understood that God has ordained evangelism and missions as the divine means through which he will call out his people from every corner of this world. Now, did Paul know whom God had chosen to save? Absolutely not. No. In fact, what we see Paul doing, for instance, in Romans 10 and verse 1, we see Paul praying for the salvation of sinners. And even being grieved to soul agony over the unbelief of sinners in Romans chapter 9. And finally, of course, we just see Paul taking the gospel to the whole world. Paul knew his place as we should ours. God saves, we evangelize. It's just that plain and simple. God saves, we evangelize. And our evangelism or gospeling is universal and without discrimination because as far as we're concerned, every sinner we come in contact with is a potential believer. And so when we take the gospel to others, we do so with hearts full of sincere devotion and hope that these sinners we are evangelizing will come to faith in Christ. We should long and ache for their salvation. Like Charles Spurgeon, of whom I quoted a moment ago, may our compassion for sinners be expressed like this. Listen to what Spurgeon once said. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Is that how you feel? Is that your compassion? Is that your conviction? The gospel is for potential believers. It is for everyone without exception. No one should ever be excluded from hearing God's saving message. Its message of salvation is universal. And why is that? Well, it is universal because all people, as we've learned this morning, are universally under the power of sin. It's also universal because Jesus Christ is man's only hope for salvation. And lastly, since the gospel is a universal message, then it must be preached universally and indiscriminately to the whole world. Paul the apostle felt deeply convicted about this, and his actions only proved the truth of those convictions. He was unashamed of the gospel and therefore made every effort... To carry it to the ends of the earth. In other words, for Paul, as he preached the gospel, there was not only the reality of its message being God's power to save sinners, but also there was this reality that the gospel is for everyone, for everyone. It's for potential believers. So think about this. Okay? Think. Who in this world, who in this world is without sin? Who? No one. No one. So, who is in need of Christ to save them? Everyone. Everyone. So, who is the gospel for? The whole world. The world at large. So let me ask you this. Do you see those around you who are without Christ? Okay, Those you know who are without Christ. Do you see them as potential believers? Is that how you really see them? When you, when you look at other people in this world... What is your first thought? Are your thoughts of a fleshly nature rather than spiritual? For example, do you judge them by what they wear? Or do you judge them by what they say or who they're with? Are those your first thoughts? Thoughts about their appearance or company? Or do you look at them as... Sinners in need of Christ like you are. What about family members, for example, who you know are without Christ? I've said this before, and I'll say it again here. The greatest and hardest mission field for all Christians is among their own blood relatives. There is no harder mission field for a Christian than that. And yet, is it not true that where we have typically shown the greatest shame for the gospel has been within within our own natural family? Among our own natural family. Now, I grant that there are those family members we have actually tried to reach with the gospel repeatedly, but they scorn it, And they scoff at it to the point where it would be wiser on our part to stop casting pearls before swine. Moreover, it is also true, as Scripture teaches us repeatedly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In other words, familiarity breeds contempt. That's a reality. So we will have family members who will just hold us in contempt because we are family and will thus not hear us under any circumstances if we try to share the gospel with them. That's a hard, cold reality, and every Christian has faced that if they're not facing that even right now. However, you knew there'd be a however. With these qualifiers aside... The members of our natural family are sinners like us and we should make every effort by prayer and wisdom to reach them with the gospel. Because if we're going to be faithful in the mission of the gospel and thus prove we have no shame in it, then we must see all people everywhere, especially in our own natural family as potential believers. When you think about certain members in your natural family that you know, you know they do not know Christ, you know they're not saved. And they have given you, over time, they have given you such heartache and headaches because of their scoffing. Because of how much they disregard Christ and His and His salvation. And 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 they they literally persecute you for this. Have you ever found yourself, because it's so easy for us to do this with our family members, have you ever found yourself at some point as a Christian saying, What's it even worth? What's it even worth? Why continue to pray? Why continue to reach out? Why continue to connect? Why continue to sow that seed? What's it worth? Well, here's my question. Are these family members still here? Are they still breathing? Have they left this world yet? Well, then guess what? Only God has the right and only God has the power and only God has the judgment to write them off. We don't. We don't. And so therefore, even at this very hour, such family members are still potential believers. Potential believers. Now, It may not be you, personally, who is the instrument of God to bring them to faith in Christ. It may not be you. It may be someone else. That's fine. We don't have an ego in this, for goodness sakes. We can't save anybody. Only God can save. But here's what we should never stop doing. We should never stop praying for them. Because even with the Apostle Paul, even with the rejection that he faced from his own Jewish ethnicity, his Jewish kinsmen, who he grieved over so much because of their unbelief, Paul never stopped praying for them. And neither should we. We should never stop praying for those members of our natural family who we know, if they were to leave this world at this very moment, they would be in eternal hellfire right now. How many of us, beloved, feel the weight of that? How many of us are thinking hard enough about that, about that reality? I think for many Christians, they don't want to think about that. Let's just, let's just go on about our way and we'll just you know, try to get along the best we can with them. That is not a responsible Christian. And you're not being responsible to the stewardship God's given you in giving you the gospel. Pray for them and continue praying for them. Even if the door has been closed where you can't speak to them anymore about it. Sometimes that door does get closed. I know that personally. Sometimes it does. But you still pray. You still pray. So let me leave us then with this at the end. May God give us the grace to grow in boldness and boasting in the gospel so that we will not be ashamed but fearless in taking God's saving message to all people everywhere. And may Christ remove from us every stumbling block of prejudice which keeps us from seeing all sinners as potential believers that God may have mercy upon them to save, even as he had mercy upon us. I think all of us in here who are Christians, all of us would say, I did not deserve to be saved. I believe every one of us in here has got the spiritual sense enough and the honesty enough to say, no, I deserve to go to hell. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Well, with that conviction, let that be one of many reasons why you would reach out To other sinners who are without Christ now, and say, You know, if the Lord had mercy upon me, who didn't deserve to be saved, but he saved me in spite of myself, Lord, why wouldn't you save this sinner? You had mercy on me. Why wouldn't you have mercy on them? Take the gospel to other people in your circle, where God has placed you, who need to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what an awesome responsibility, Lord, you have entrusted to us as the church What an incredible stewardship, indeed astonishing, that you have given to us that in these broken earthen vessels as we are, we have this incredible treasure, the saving gospel of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and we pray, therefore, Father, this day. That based upon what we have heard and seen from your holy word, we pray the Holy Spirit will take and seal and sanctify each one of us with a greater conviction and boldness, with a greater liberty to speak the truth about Christ and his salvation to those whom you have planted within our pathway, within our circle of influence. Lord, open our mouths to speak and to do so with wisdom and understanding, to do so in the most fitly spoken words, to sow the seed of the gospel into the hearts of those you put in our path. We pray this earnestly for the sake and the honor and the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.